calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to IGN Unfiltered. It is my occasionally airing interview show where I sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. A rare repeat guest coming back. You were one of the early guests on this uh, fine little program. Cliff Blazinski, good to see you again. You are the author of your memoir, Control Freak, out November 1st, which, by the way, is today as this interview is airing. Cliff, welcome. Good to see you. It's good to see you, man. It's been way, way too long. Uh, you know, I was saying earlier that, you know, we haven't been doing the convention circuit that much, you know, with COVID and everything like that. And just being around crowds just feels kind of weird these days. Um, but we're slowly starting to reemerge into society, you know, probably going to do Comic-Con this upcoming year. Um, nice. You know, I, you know, being mostly out of the video game industry, you know, E3 and GDC, I'm kind of like, eh. Because if I go, people are just going to be like, what are you up to these days? And I'm like, I actually have a lot of stuff going on, but... You know, I don't really feel like explaining myself over and over again to multiple people at a hotel lobby bar. Yeah, we'll get to that because uh, I've got just under an hour with you. So I'm going to make the most of the time. Uh, I read the book. I really enjoyed the book. It was a really very honest book, which I mean, I know you to be an honest guy from the, the many years that I've known you. I mean, you discuss being molested by a man that you met on the Internet when you were a teenager in this book. You admit to cheating on your first wife in this book. And you confess a lot of insecurity about uh, your life as you were trying to make it as a video game designer. So, you know, what what compels you to, to put all this out there? Honestly, first off, don't ever do a memoir because it's it's I, I mentioned in the book, it's like fighting Dark Link. You're like fighting yourself and I'm having to like relive, you know, the trauma of losing my father, you know, losing in the Nintendo World Championships, um, you know, the molestation, the whole nine yards. Uh, you know, the fall of my first marriage, the amount of hours that I worked, uh, you know, for Epic Games and Boss Key, the failure of Boss Key, um, essentially what it ultimately wound up being was a weird form of therapy that I might make a tiny bit of money off of, right? And it's like, and the, the thing is, the process, it's like, you know, when I was writing it just by myself, you know, I was just blathering, just, you know, my, I, you know, maybe I have ADD or something, just yammering all over the place. And then um, Simon and Schuster partnered me up with this guy named Todd Gold. Uh, he wrote uh, Drew Barrymore's book, A Little Girl Lost, 
Uh, he wrote books for the Osbournes, things like that. And he's, he's brilliant. And he essentially taught me how to be a writer. And so it was um, an arduous process. It took four years from start to finish. Um, but I really think it, it paints a picture of who I am as a person and as a human being, as opposed to the brash personality that the personality that I've had online for, for decades that, you know, people love to paint me as some sort of giant asshole. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a loving husband now and I'm in a better place. So that's me. Well, you know, uh, just a little on that topic, you know, you've, I recall you really making a concerted effort to try and get away from the Cliffy B thing for a while, but you, you ended up, you went with it right here on the cover of the book. So I'm just, it's such a tiny little detail to me, but, but again, knowing you, I was just wanted to ask you about that. Like, uh, well, that, so <laughs> back in the day, um, you know, when I said, I don't want to be called Cliffy B anymore, it was essentially me fucking with the internet. Like, I don't, you know, I'm 47 years old now. And my whole policy these days is I like to be called Clifford because for years when I'd say Cliff, people would be like, Chris, I'm like, Cliff, Clifford, like the big red fucking dog. And so, you know, now being a little bit older, you know, Lauren refers to me as Clifford, you know, she's streaming these days, uh, you know, Twitch TV, um, Leet Lauren. And, uh, you know, she's getting a little bit of traction there, but she has like a little stuffed Clifford in her gamer chair next to her. And it's one of those things that, you know, you're allowed to be confident in almost every industry or business. If you're a cocky athlete, if you're a politician saying God knows what, especially these days, if you're an actor, a uh, porn star, whatever. Uh, but if you're a game developer and you have confidence, the internet will just rip you to shreds. And it, it, I can tell that a troll's going to be showing up on my Twitter feed when I haven't had a troll for a couple months. And sooner rather than later, you know, anime avatar, you know, eight five four eight six seven is going to show up and be like, you're an idiot, you know, who's just joined Twitter two months ago and has zero followers, right? Um, and, you know, it's easy to say, don't read that or like, don't take it to heart. But, you know, I'm an emotional person. You know, I'm a drama nerd, always was. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the, the the speech that Jimmy Valvano did, the uh, the North Carolina College um, yeah. uh, uh, basketball coach, when he said during his decline, if you could do three things in one day, if you could think, laugh and cry, that's a good day. And I usually try and done for that. You know, I watch stand-up comedy towards the end of the night, or I'll watch a movie that makes me emotional, or I'll, I'll reminisce about something and, you know, I'll, I'll research, you know, how, how to, you know, the restaurant business works or how Broadway works or how the, the book publishing business works. So, you know, I'm always learning, I'm always laughing, and I'm always trying to look for an excuse to have, you know, Niagara Falls. <laughs> uh, Nick Kroll's latest on Netflix. That was, I don't know if you've watched that yet. That was I do the same thing. I, I like to watch stand up before bed because it just it's just a it's a happy, calming thing. I love it. Well, I, I have uh, like several types. We have, we, we're lucky enough that we have a nice movie room set up. Right. Um, I mean, I did work for it, but we're still lucky. And basically, you know, I go towards the end of the night. I get in that room and I put the chair back. Got a drink in my hand. Got my wife next to me. Got my dog in my lap. Got the other dog next to me. And there's multiple types of entertainment. First off, it's like, you know, what's new streaming video on demand? So we'll maybe watch a movie. And then I'll watch, you know, uh, essentially a stand-up special. And then I'll just go to YouTube and just start watching random things. And, uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, my problem is my schedule is totally fucked because I'm having a sleepover with my best friend every night. And we go to bed at like three in the morning at least. 
And because I'm like, it, I'm lucky that I don't have to set an alarm like 90% of the time. And, you know, that anticipation of like, okay, just, just 20 more minutes of sleep, ma, you know, that kind of, that kind of vibe. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm very blessed with where I am in life. And, you know, I've been asked, you know, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, Epic has exploded? Uh, Epic has, you know, Fortnite's a, a global phenomenon. Uh, you know, there's a photo in the book of myself and Tim Sweeney. And it says, you know, one of these people is a multimillionaire. The other one's a multi-billionaire. And I had to come to grips with the fact that, you know, I'm comfortable, you know, I'm maintaining. But the thing is, is um, I have to get downstairs to remind myself that comparison is the thief of joy. So I'm, you know, happy. And one of the reasons, you know, I, I tried to renegotiate my contract when I left Epic, um, you know, Tim wouldn't put up with it. Tim's like, no, nope, this isn't going to happen. And so I was like, okay, we got, you know, the 10 cent investment. I'm going to be fiscally comfortable. And then I'm happily married now. Um, and I'm just going to ride off in the sunset. And at the same time, I started getting bored. You know, the, the, everybody has that dad that retires, right? And there's a reason he has like a woodworking shop inside the garage. You know, you need to do something. And, you know, I got this tattoo a while back. I don't know if you'd see it. There it is. And, yeah. Yeah, you can barely see it, but it's um, it's Harold the Purple Crayon, which was one of my favorite books as a child growing up. And Harold, you know, has this crayon and he just draws stuff that and just makes it come to life. And, you know, I've always been a creative and, you know, I have multiple irons in the fire right now that I'm creating. And for me, I missed that feeling of typing up a description of a character or a setting or an environment and getting concept art back from a very, very talented artist. And so I'm making multiple things that I'm paying out of pocket myself. So I own it right now, like, you know, owning the intellectual property and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be a while before anybody sees it, but I'm really, really excited about what's in the horizon. And my theory is when you obsess about the past, you're not thinking about making your future. And so, you know, I take edibles to sleep, which has been a godsend. And uh, sure. whenever I get, I, I get a, a too high of a dose because usually it's like we should go to bed i'm tired um you know sometimes you wind up with like an existential crisis and i'm like no think about what you're going to do tomorrow think about what you're going to do next week think about what you're going to do next month not only to keep the coffers full but to also have that that feeling of creativity coming out of you you know i'm just had a call earlier with my uh, broadway producing partners and there's an option to you know invest and produce other broadway shows besides hades town so, you know, I just, I have a, you know, a lot of plates spinning, but I also get my sleep. Well, that's, you know, I, I, I'm all, I'm all with you on focusing on the future not dwelling too much in the past, but we are here to promote and talk about a book that is your past. So <laughs> let's keep doing that for a few minutes. I wanted to well, ask. Names, uh, have been, names have been changed. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, which is, you know, you're, you're doing it to protect the innocent. Uh, were you a rock star as a kid in school after the Nintendo World Championships thing happened? No, I was I was still no. just a pimply dork. You know, there's even, the, even, the story. You know, I, even you're you're five years older than I am, and I remember. I mean, Nintendo was maybe that five years made enough of a difference, but Nintendo was such a a cool thing uh, when I was in of that the same age you were when when the Nintendo World Championships competition happened that. I, I feel like you should have been hailed as a conquering hero and had had been like legendary playground stories at school after that. 
That was absolutely not the case. Um, I was a pimply-faced, uh, awkward teen, and video games weren't cool when I was coming up in the 80s and early 90s, right? And, uh, you know, the sports kids were cool, right? And it was one of those things that, uh, you know, there's a story in the book about, you know, uh, you know, me having gum put in my hair on the school bus and having a Coke dumped on my head, um, and then me making the bus driver stop and me running across the pond where I used to catch frogs and snakes and turtles and whatnot. And they're, you know, yelling out the window, he's going home to play his Nintendo. And then there's also the, uh, the story of, I used to go into our computer lab in, in uh, middle school and I play like Oregon trail and lemonade on the Apple TCs and whatnot. And there's a famous far side comic where there's a kid playing his video games and the parents imagine in the future, the help wanted ads where the kid's yep. getting really, really fat salaries and things like that. And Gary Larson, God bless him, he didn't know at the time he was being prophetic. Absolutely. Because you're seeing, you know, YouTubers and streamers and TikTokers, you know, playing games, you know, eSports. E These kids are making money hand over fist now because at the end of the day, eyeballs equals money. And we also live in a world where loneliness is an industry. You know, that explains, you know, OnlyFans. You know, you, you can just be a person that puts up amateur adult stuff online. But the thing about OnlyFans is there's a feeling of a connection and people just want to feel connected to somebody else. And you have an entire generation of, of youth that really have a hard time interacting IRL in the real world, right? And yeah. so they live online. They, they, they live on 4chan. They, they, they live on memes. And that's the world in which we live. And parents these days are just like, what the fuck is going on? And it's one of those things that, you know, I was online, you know, from 1990 or so on, you know, I had the dial up modems that sounded like two robots fucking. And, you know, I, I, you know, the BBS, BBSs and whatnot, all of it. And, uh, you know, I've been called every name you can imagine on the internet for, you know, 30 fucking years, you know, and, you know, you think I'd have thicker skin right now, but now I'm, I'm still an emotional, uh, theater nerd at the end of the day. Well, you know, speaking of, of emotional, you know, you wrote that after your dad died, uh, tragically of a heart attack that happened while you were in high school, your mom moves you out to California, remarries. And as you put it in the book, peaced out emotionally speaking, which just as her mom had done to her. So at that point, you're still at an age where I'm sure it would have been really great to have a mother's love and guidance as you're trying to navigate high school. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like, what ultimately happened with your relationship with your mom? Like, did, did she do the thing where when you become successful and rich and, and get some fame that she comes knocking? Absolutely. So what happened was, first off, when my dad died, um, I was 15 years old. And then my mother like didn't have any friends apart from the family. So uh, the uh, my older brothers, the, the I'm the youngest of five boys. The older brothers had moved on to college and things like that. It was my older brother Tyler and I that were left, you know, dealing with you know her grieving. Right? Yeah. For the first few nights, she couldn't even sleep in her own bed. We you know we wound up sleeping in the living room. And the thing is, is um, she decided to move to California because she didn't want to be known as that woman who lost her husband. So we moved out there. It was a, turned out to be a great move for, for me long-term, but what happened is she met a new dude who was great um, and fell in love, and she went from being a loving, doting mother to just, no, nah, nah, fuck off. I don't want anything to do with you. And then when I started making money, it was one of those things that 
I bought her a car. And she says on the phone to me, well, Shaq bought his mom a house. And that was like establishing character shot where I'm like, mom, you don't understand how volatile the video game industry is. Like people, you know, such as yourself have asked me, where do you think the industry is going to be in three to five years? Nobody fucking knows, you know, it could change, you know, in a year, you know, no one predicted the rise of battle Royale, et cetera, and all that stuff. Right. Um, and the irony of all of it is my father's death and my mother's ability to tune out and just let me do my thing led to my career. So, you know, I've carried a lot of guilt from both angles of that across the years. You got noticed by Epic while you reached out uh, after you made your own game, you mentioned it, uh, that it started to sell copies. People would, would call and order copies over the phone uh, and to start making money on a game that you made as a teenager in the pre-internet days, uh, even, you know, that had to give you some confidence, right? That, that you, you had some talent here? I got into video games for multiple reasons. First off, to um, make great games. Second off, to be well known for it. And third off, to make money. And the feeling of, you know, there's a scene in the book where, you know, there's two of the uh, the cool kids, you know, on the quad at my uh, California high school where they're, you know, they're like, you don't, we don't see you at any parties. Like, like what's going on here? And I'm like, uh, they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, I make games and I make money. And then we all went to Taco Bell. But the kicker was, is, you know, I used to listen to, I still listen to Ice-T. I've always been a fan of Ice-T and realizing that Ice-T was playing my video games when he was making his records as I was listening to his records making said video games. So it was like Ouroboros, like the circle is complete, right? And the thing is, is uh, he, had this, he has this line in one of his songs where he said, I had nothing and I wanted it. You had everything and you flaunted it. And I remember being in the shadow of id Software and, you know, John Ramiro and John Carmack being in Wired Magazine showing off their Ferraris. And that, like, I have this term I used, it's called find your fireball, like, you know, Ken or Ryu, where it's like, what is what is that coming out of your chest to motivate you, to get you out of bed yeah. in the morning, to, to keep you going? And it's that that's that thing is like, you know, I was hungry. I was hungry as fuck. I was willing to sleep under my desk. I was willing to work the hours. I was willing to travel back and forth to shitty Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, repeatedly when I was actually happy with Max wife for a brief period and, and make the first unreal. It's amazing how many people don't know there was actually a game unreal and it's not just an engine. Oh, I, well, I remember and, it, it. It dragged my Pentium to its knees, but it was stunning. I remember it. Well, remember the, uh, you remember the uh, weird Al uh, song. It's all about the Pentiums. <laughs> it was kind of his parody of all about the Benjamins. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, being 47, I still like, I think relatively young and people just don't really know like the amount of work that was involved. Cause it wasn't just sitting at a desk and building levels and playing games and, you know, or, you know, you know, doing visual basic for my adventure games. I also rose to the top of the heap in regards to being decent on camera and having, you know, my drama background and having no problem being in front of a crowd. So I had to work double duty essentially. And, you know, much to the, the love and also ire of the internet, right? Well, you know, your first game at Epic, Jazz Jackrabbit, which uh, you were partnered up with a very talented artist on, it, you know, it sounds like from just following you over the years and, and continuing to keep in touch with you, it sounds like jazz is still really near and dear to your heart. I'm still getting paychecks from it. <laughs> 
It's a crazy All thanks, better. good old games.com. Well, the thing is, is I actually have a, a sticker for Jazz 2 right here. There it is. Nice. The thing is, is um, you know, I always tried to make all of my work as personal as I could. Um, and to actually, not to to be a dick, but to correct you, um, Dare to Dream was actually the first game I did with Epic. Um, Thank which you. was my first failure, my first failure long before Lawbreakers. And uh, but then, you know, Jazz, you know, we grew up having, you know, bunnies as pets. And, you know, I grew up, you know, my parents would show me, you know, 80s violent movies like Robocop and Rambo. And I was like, what if I had a Rambo rabbit, you know, and he's, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare 3000 years later. And, you know, I, I understood branding even at a young age, you know, alliteration helps, you know, the jazz jackrabbit. Right. And, you know, there's people out there with, you know, tattoos of him on their body. And as a creative, I can tell you, Ryan, there is no greater honor than when you make something and people get it tattooed in their bodies. You know, the amount of Gears of War tattoos and Unreal Tournament tattoos and Jazz Jackrabbit tattoos out there, it's crazy. There's no Dare, dare to Dream tattoos, <laughs> surprisingly. you got but your the thing is, is, uh, tattoo on your arm. I mean, again, it's on my left arm because, you know, I'm a lefty. So it's my reminder when I wake up every day to just take a few steps to create. You know, I'm working on, I don't know if you've seen on my Twitter, I'm working on an intellectual property that stars a, a superhero. Dog, dog The dog thing, yeah. Yeah, which was inspired by my Pomsky. Um, and the funny thing is, is uh, the Pomsky, uh, her name's Lady. Um, and I lost my Australian Shepherd. He has this, we have the shrine behind me right there, you know, a, a few years ago, right as Bosky was circling the drain, I had to put my fucking dog down. So it was like a one-two punch and, you know, Mad World was probably playing in the background. And I, um, you know, once the, the year of spontaneous crying stopped, because I love that fucking dog, um, Lauren found this Pomsky in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we were going up to the final season premiere of Game of Thrones in Manhattan. And yes, the final season wasn't that good, I know, but I'm friends with the showrunners. And so we go to Radio City Music Hall, you know, we see the, the first episode and then we go to the after party, you know, we're hanging out with John Oliver and the mountain and things like that. And then, you know, I'm about to, to leave and then turns out there's another after party. And so we are at this, uh, this hotel, the uh, Mandarin Oriental, and, uh, you know, it's a speakeasy. I'm sitting there hanging out with the cast, right? And, um, you know, I'm friends with uh, Liam Cunningham, Sir Davos, and uh, he, you know, goes upstairs and changes out of his suit, comes down wearing a T-shirt and sweatpants. Kit Harrington, a.k.a. Jon Snow, looks at him and goes, you look like a fucking homeless mad lad. And then I see Peter Dinklage, you know, a little tipsy. I mean, probably only takes a beer and a half for him. You know, he's a small man. And uh, I'm like, oh, can, can, can I meet Peter? And he's like, yeah, sure. And Dinklage comes over, reaches over and grabs Liam Cunningham's left nipple. And I grab his right nipple. So I'm sitting there with Tyrion Lannister giving Sir Davos a titty twister in Manhattan. And then it, like, while, well, you know, Amelia Clark Daenerys is like behind us going like, what the fuck is going on right now? And uh, so then, you know, I get another message from uh, D.B. Weiss, Dan Weiss, who, you know, gave me a quote for the back of the book because he read it and enjoyed it. And... Uh, He's like, oh, we're having a, we're going to uh, up to our suite to hang out, and we wound up drinking with the cast of Game of Thrones until four in the morning. It turns out Joffrey was was a nice guy, but immediately after that, we flew down to Charlotte, North Carolina, picked up the dog, and realizing you know how much I love Game of Thrones, I was like, okay, we're going to name her Lady after Sansa Stark's direwolf, and she's ultimately been my muse for the dog thing that I'm working on. And that's the thing is, you know, I talk about finding your fireball, like you know, finding your muse. I, I really believe in the idea 
of muses. You know, Lauren was my muse for so much of what I've done throughout my life. You know, at the end of Gears 3, uh, you know, Marcus and Anya are on the beach. You know, Marcus finally takes off his do-rag. He takes off his armor. You know, he's le- essentially letting his hair down. And he sits down on the log, you know, next to Anya. And, and he says, what do we have now? And Anya puts her hand on his leg and says, we have a tomorrow. And, yeah. and you know, during crunch time in the Gears of War franchise with Lauren, we, you know, we'd escape to the Carolina shore. And that's why, you know, I am a firm believer that game developers should make their work as personal as possible. I'm with you. I mean, and it comes through in your games, too. I mean, that was always the secret sauce. Well, not so secret. It, to people that didn't play the game, it seemed secret. But to people that played it, we knew, like... There's a heart, you know. These meatheads all there's a there's a heart at the at the at the center of this thing, and that's that's why it's lived on so long. But um, you know, you talk about that's, muses. That's cool. I want to ask you about about heroes because Shigeru Miyamoto is mentioned repeatedly in your book as an industry hero of yours, and understandably so. But you know, you don't actually mention if you've ever been able to meet him at some point in time. So. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Did you, have you had the chance to meet Miyamoto? And if so, what was that like? I, I got to br- I brushed I, by him once at E3, and that was that was the closest. And even that, I like, you know, I, I've met a, a lot of great people in the industry, and that was one where. Uh, I was, I had the kind of little bit of a celebrity moment. Yeah. It's uh, I don't, I don't geek out that often around uh, like celebs or anything like that, you know, and you know, I've had my share, my share of hanging out with, you know, famous people and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. blah. But I've met him a few times. Um, and it's one of those things that there's a, there's some photos of me and him out there at some, some point, um, you know, and he's, he's just, he's got a childlike way about him, you know, and that's, I think it's, that's the thing is, you know, for me, my brother often says, you know, w- with everything that happened to me when I was 15, it's a case of arrested development. And he was he was kind, he was affable, and he's one of my heroes. The other one that's also mentioned in the book is a Hideo Kojima, who's actually, excuse me, become a friend of mine. And it was Hideo Kojima when I took my uh, in-laws to Japan, right as Bosque was circling the drain. And he told me in person, he says, you did something on your own. You know, you were with your old studio for years. You, you got funding, you hired up, you shipped a game, you know, and this was before Death Stranding had even shipped. And he's like, I haven't even done that yet. You know, and it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes as they say in Dear Evan Hansen, when you're, you know, when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you, when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. And sometimes, you know, I believe we're in the matrix and the coder that's running this matrix 
has a way of sending you signals sometimes. And that was the sign that, you know, I was going to give it one last go with the studio with uh, Radical Heights. And it's yeah. one of those things I hope, you know, I'm going to be on the right side of history in regards to the fact that, you know, I made, well, I mean, let's be fair, it was a game and a half, you know, because Radical Heights was super raw. But, you know, so many days people message me on Twitter. They're like, fix Gears of War. And I'm like, the see, the new ones were pretty good, dude. Okay. Um, but the, uh, the other thing is, you know, like they want Radical Heights back. They want Lawbreakers back. And I'm like, where the fuck were you guys back then? Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is we live in a world now where if you're not in the front page of Twitch, you're dead in the water. And it's, it's such a, a shell game in regards to, you know, appealing to influencers and social media. Another quick point about one of my heroes is um, Todd Howard. And, you know, when we were doing the convention circuit, it was the funniest thing because, you know, Todd, my wife's a big nerd, right? You know, and she, she, you know, loves, you know, all sorts of types of games. That's what brought us together. But her and Todd would always be off in the corner at like the E3 parties, just chatting, 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 right? She, uh, you know, she loves, you know, nerdiness. Um, you know, and we have seen what's also this in this generation, the rise of the beautiful nerd, you know, and it's, it's been such a fascinating thing. And, you know, it's so nice to know that she's my forever person and I don't want to ever spend a night without her because I absolutely love her. Uh, you mentioned the, of course, you know, the Unreal Tournament days. You mentioned Carmack and Romero. Uh, Romero specifically comes up a decent bit throughout the book, and I want to ask you about him in a second. But I'm just curious, as, as somebody, I was a gamer during the UTQ3, you know, the 1999 and that whole thing. Was that rivalry felt by you guys on the inside as developers the way it was definitely a thing in the community at the time? Because it was a bizarre coincidence that they came out so close to each other. Yeah, we uh, we wanted to crush them, honestly. And there was a certain period at Epic where, you know, Tim was always like, well, what would Id and Carmack do, right? Because, you know, at the same time, what we did was what I call counter-programming. Yes, we were making a multiplayer first-person shooter, but we wanted to have bright colors, not make it kind of dark and, and dreary. You know, same thing with the first Unreal. Unreal had the bright colored lighting. It had sky castles. It had, you know, all these beautiful environments, whereas Quake was deep, dark, Trent Reznor-fueled Cthulhu dungeons. And, you know, that was also, you know, what I tried for with, uh, you know, Lawbreakers back a few years ago, where, you know, like you, we wanted to have an art style different than Overwatch. We wanted to have abilities that weren't just the same. You know, I watched my wife play Overwatch 2, you know, as Mercy, just with the the healing noodle following people around. And I'm like, I still don't understand how that's fun. Um, the game certainly has its merits, it, you know, crushed us, but it's one of those things that, you know, we saw it as our rivals. And it's a similar thing, you know, like with John Romero, that I saw Romero as my my enemy, you know, like, you know, he had, he was dating Stevie Case at the time, who's in Playboy and whatnot, right? And uh, I was like, I'm going to take that guy down, you know, it goes back to the, again, the whole, I had nothing and I wanted it, you, you got everything and you flaunted it. And so we were, we were gunning to try and, you know, defeat it. And I'm fairly certain that Unreal Tournament outsold uh, Quake 3 Arena, but um, I don't actually have the numbers in front of me. But the thing is, is, you know, their tech was technically more advanced, but ours would actually run on a potato. So, um, and we continue to support it by, you know, I had my, my ownage website back in the day, you know, which has led to many people uh, actually having jobs in the, in the industry as level designers now. And uh, it was uh, it was a wild time, you know, a lot of sleeping under your desk, a lot of Mountain Dew, and uh, eventually a lot of Claritin D to keep me awake. You were you were pretty honest about 
Romero in the book and talking about how, you know, you just kind of touched on now that you were sort of seeing him as a rival and, and you talked about Daikatana and, and sort of the, you know, being part of the, um, you know, kind of rooting for the demise. And then life came full circle for you on that with lawbreakers. And you've, you've come to, you write in the book that you talk about uh, really coming to a, a better place with regard to your, your feelings about Romero. Has he read this book yet? Has he gotten a copy or, or have you, have you had a chance to sort of talk to him over the years and, and sort of, I have, I have not actually been able to get him a copy yet. Um, I mean, you know, he's, you know, he's thriving these days. Um, You know, he's happily married to Brenda. Um, And it's one of those things, you know, we wound up hanging out in Croatia at uh, the the dev conference a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, I saw him as my rival, I saw him as my enemy, and then eventually he became a good friend, you know, and he's a smart, he's smart, charismatic dude. And the thing is, Ramiro was one of the first rock star game designers. And I looked at his playbook and I tried to emulate it as much as possible. You know, he had his signature long hair, he has his painted nails, you know, he's Rocky Rollmite. And then I was doing the whole like, you know, the blonde hair, the the red hair, you know, changing my looks up a lot because being a pop culture nut, you know, I was, you know, grew up watching Madonna continue to reinvent herself. And I knew that was something that I had to do in the video game industry. And I'm, you know, I'm proud to say that he's actually become a good friend. And to go back to the whole, uh, real quick, the the Game of Thrones thing, uh, Sir Davos, he, his daughter, uh, Ellen, Ellen Cunningham, um, she uh, is actually, was studying game design under Brenda and John in Ireland. And so it was one of those things, you know, when I met her at, at a Comic-Con party, the the Entertainment Weekly one, she's like, oh my God, you're Cliffy B. And um, I'm studying under John and Brenda. And she's just an absolute sweetheart, very, very talented and, you know, she was at GDC once and I was introducing her to absolutely everybody that I could because she's just super talented. Now she's making games and it's just, you know, the world is small, you know, and my advice is, you know, don't be a dick when you're young and you're cocky. You just think you're invincible. You think you can get, you can get away with anything. And then you get a little bit older and you're like, shit, man, I was being an asshole. And so now, you know, in hindsight, it really is a, a classic Hollywood kind of story, whereas, you know, rooting for Ramiro to fall. Like, you know, every time I go to Dallas, you know, we just went there for My Chemical Romance and to see, you know, we stay at the W there because it's the hotel where Lauren and I first met, first kissed, et cetera. And I look at that tower that Ramiro, you know, leased the top few floors for Ion Storm. And I, I send a photo to my uh, my old art director, Chris Perda, who's working for him for years. And uh, I'm like, it still hurts, doesn't it? And he's like, God damn it. And, uh, you know, now Chris Perna, you know, is just, you know, worldwide uh, art director for Epic Games. You know, I, I recruited him from Ion Storm and from Ramiro's fall of the studio, I wound up recruiting a whole bunch of really, really talented people uh, at Epic Games. And, uh, you know, silver lining to that, but it's one of those things that, you know, in hindsight, it was really dickish to have the shot and fraud of seeing somebody else's studio fail. And then again, the Matrix God was sending me another signal, like, well, now your studio is gonna fail. You're gonna see how it fucking feels. Uh, well, I've got 20 minutes to get through Gears and Boss Key and what you're up to now, so I'm gonna I'm gonna press fast forward here. Uh, can you yep. tell me about casting John DiMaggio in Gears? Did was he your first choice, and and how did how quickly did the voice come around? I mean, John's voiced a million different things, but but Marcus is a pretty unique voice of his, and it's so iconic and it's so perfect. I was wondering if you could sh- uh, talk on that a little bit. 
he's got that kind of gravelly voice, you know, like some Leonard Cohen kind of shit, right? And the thing is, is uh, he wasn't our first choice. Um, there was this uh, one of the first Gears trailers, which had a kid whispering, you know, uh, something about, you know, the nighttime coming and the monsters coming up and then saying, are you afraid? And then the first guy we casted, his voice sounded like, oh, the dark. And then Rod, God bless him, was like, dude, this, this voice doesn't match this guy's body type or his gruff look. We need somebody with like a deeper voice. And so, you know, we had another uh, round of auditions and then DiMaggio rose to the top and I'm like, wait, that's fucking Bender. Okay. And, you know, the thing is, is so many of the, the voice talent that we, we hired in cast for the, the you know, the, the three of them that I worked on, you know, had such a great cadence to their voices. They had such a great tone, you know, Anyo sounded perfect. All of them, you know, Dom, you know, it's, I remember hiring Carlos Ferro um, because he, he sounded a little Latino, but he didn't sound like speedy fucking Gonzalez, you know, cause I remember playing one of the splinter cell games and I'm hearing these guys being like, I papi, oh, Dios mio, whatever. I'm just like, oh my God, that's like a bad stereotype. And, you know, he wound up putting a lot of heart into the characters. And the thing about Gears was when it came out, the first three, you know, all the, the feedback was like, this is just a buff, stupid dude, bro shooter, blah, 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 blah. And once in a while, I will wistfully go to YouTube after a mimosa and look up like Dom's death, Maria's death, you know, uh, all of it, and then just read the comments. And people were moved. You know, we made a game that was, you know, one part Predator and one part, you know, Donnie Darko. And it really it resonated with people, you know, again, going back to the whole tattoos. So, yeah, DiMaggio is a hell of a talent. Uh, one thing that surprised me to learn about Gears when I read the book is that you didn't have the trilogy mapped out. You really were kind of taking it one game at a time. And the story was, all right, well, we're going to do another one. So let where do we want to take this? What do we want to do that? Like in, in 2022, that feels kind of crazy in this world of mcu and everything's mapped out all ahead of time like it it's i mean I t please don't take this disrespectfully but it's to me it seems like kind of a miracle that years one through three has as wonderful of an arc and as much of an emotional heart as it does since you were you you were kind of just taking each one as as it came from one to two to three we, we had a vague idea of what we were doing and where we were going, but it was, again, it was vague. So, you know, after each game would ship, we, you know, have these meetings where Rod Ferguson, the producer, one of the best producers in the business would, you know, sit us down and say, okay, what, what, what are we going to do that's new? What are we going to do, do that's better? What are we going to do more of new, better, more? Those were the meetings. And we just, as the leads, we'd get together and brainstorm. And then, you know, there's things that I would push for. There's things that Rod would push for. There's things that Lee Perry would push for. You know, I get a lot of the credit for the trilogy, but it was very much a team effort, you know, like, you know, Tom Brady wouldn't be the goat that he is if he didn't have great teammates to support him, you know, great receivers and things like that and great coaches and whatnot. So it was one of those things that, uh, you know, same thing with what I'm working on now creatively. Like I have an idea of where I want things to go, but as a creative, you know, just have an idea where things might go, but stay a little bit loose, stay a little bit flexible. You know, Kevin Feige, is that how you pronounce his name? Um, Ike, from Marvel, I, yeah. I guess he, the, the dude's fucking brilliant. And he's dealing with, you know, dozens of years of backlogged uh, work that he can, you know, draw upon and then find, you know, talented people like James Gunn, you know, to direct 
uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and whatnot. You know, the you know, uh, I can't remember the name of the brothers that did uh, 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 Winter Russo Soldier. Brothers. Yeah, the Russo brothers. You know, great movie. Um, and you know, that's the thing about being a creative. You know, like there's a quote in the book that Mike Caps, my old boss, had on his desk. You know, in order to uh, succeed with your audience, you need to defy their expectations. You know, and I, I'm a big believer of giving people something that's familiar yet different. You know, Star Wars is essentially the old movie Hidden Fortress, but sci-fi. You know, The Mandalorian is essentially a Western, you know, and some of the new stuff I'm working on is basically kind of rooted in that. You know, I read a book, I can't remember the name of it right now, that was basically saying, you know, familiar but different. And that's generally the, the key to success. So Gears felt a little bit like Resident Evil, you know, felt a little bit like Call of Duty, uh, you know, but all mixed up with, you know, a, a, a new version of the tech, Unreal Engine 3, that made it really, really shine. And even, you know, uh, yesterday, you know, uh, well, since it's November 1st, um, you know, playing uh, Gears 1 with uh, the guy who interviewed me for CBS, it's like the remastered version still looks darn good. Um, and I'm exceptionally proud of the work that we did, and I always will be. And, you know, it's part of my legacy. And, you know, it's one of those things about Ramiro. Ramiro leans into his legacy with posting screenshots from early Doom levels and things like that. So, you know, it's as they say in politics, is, you know, the midterms are coming up rapidly. Play to your base. Yeah, I got to uh, for the for Doom's 20th anniversary 10 years ago, I got to play co-op with John Romero through all of episode one, the knee deep in the dead. And that he he cared as much about it. I couldn't I was shocked like he is he's he loves that every bit as much as the day he made it, which uh, which really was awesome for me as a fan. Uh, you show a ton of love, by the way. You mentioned Rod Ferguson, a lot of love for Rod in the book. I, I have to imagine you're still very much in touch with him. I actually haven't talked to him in a little while. Um, he's actually the um, he's the lead producer on the Diablo franchise Diablo, at uh, Act Activision Blizzard and whatnot. Um, and it's one of those things. Uh, I'm fr I became friends with this uh, this cool nerdy dude who lives in New York uh, named Ethan Wolf, and turns out he's working on the Diablo franchise. and And apparently, Rod will still tell the team stories about you know being in the trenches shipping the Gears franchise. And the irony is the art director on the gears I mean, I mean i'm sorry on the diablo franchise is a guy named john mueller who used to work for me in epic and he actually uh, as a favor he's a classically trained painter and he will paint every one of our dogs that we have so in my bedroom i have you know a, a painted image of teddy rest in peace bubba bear uh and evie and lady and uh, it's one of those things he just does it as a favor for me and it's just you know really realizing how small the industry is which is why i tell pe people don't be a fucking asshole Good advice. Uh, you talk in the book about the moment that the 10 cent money hit everyone's bank accounts at Epic. So for listeners who might not know, 10 cent uh, invested a, a large minority stake in Epic while Cliff was still there some years back. And you write about the day that the money hit everybody's bank accounts. But now you don't say exactly what the number was because you're a, a nice guy. But let me ask you this. Did anybody quit Epic and just retire right from there like was it and and really for you or for what you observed on the team was it tough to stay motivated after that because if you get if it's significant as it, as you seem to indicate that it was I, I could see how that could change some people's thinking about their about what there, they want to do um 
the thing is, uh, eventually, you know, uh, you know, I left. I think I was one of the first people to leave. But Mike Caps, my old boss, uh, left. Uh, Rod Ferguson left. Um, then the team that you know did the initial version of Fortnite pieced out, um, and it was a, a really interesting period for Epic Games. Um, they they weren't really shipping any games. Fortnite, the early version of Save the World, took like five six years to get out, and then they did the most brilliant pivot in video game history uh, to do the battle royale mode. And then, you know, Donald Mustard actually took over, you know, as creative uh, director at the company. And I remember, you know, he, he worked at, uh, you know, Chair Entertainment, which Epic acquired a while back. They did Infinity Blade and, and Shadow Complex and things like that. And Donald reminds me a lot of myself, the fact that he's a creative, but he can hang with the nerds, but he can also hang with the cool kids. You know, he can stand in front of a room and pitch a game idea with this, a great PowerPoint and super charisma while also like, you know, going over somebody's shoulder and looking at the character being built or look at the environments being built or, or, you know, looking at the code and things like that. And it's one of those things that, um, when you get life-changing wealth like that, um, it kind of affects your thinking. And I realized, you know, when I, I walked away, um, that I just was tired of arguing with programmers. You know, there's a, the old adage, the old saying that says, Arguing with a programmer is like wrestling with a pig in the mud. Eventually you realize the pig likes it, right? And I remember, you know, there's a, a bit in the book where I'm talking about the locust being from the underground. And I remember pitching it to one of the programmers. He's like, I don't get it. I'm like, he's like, how do they get there? I'm like, that's part of the mystery. We'll figure that out later, you know? And, it, you know, programmers are so analytical and, you know, they taught me over the decades how to be efficient, you know, and the kicker was, you know, me also being from New England, I'm very much cut to the fucking chase. Let's get to the fucking point. And then, of course, I wound up going and marrying a Louisiana girl who's like, well, we'll get there when we get there, you know, like just go with the flow. And I'm like, no, I make the fucking flow. I'm the one who knocks. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, no, it's, you know, just being, you know, freshly happily married. And, you know, after losing all of the money I made off of jazz and unreal in the divorce, you know, living in a shitty apartment, um, you know, to actually be able to, you know, be, have a big, beautiful house, to be able to pay my bills, to be able to go out for prime rib once in a while, you know, and occasionally fly private. Um, it's one of those things that it's, it's very freeing. And, but the, the kicker is right now what I'm doing, everything is on my own terms, which is incredibly empowering. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, last thing on gears, were you surprised that Mark and Tim sold it to Microsoft? I honestly think once Lee Perry, myself, uh, and Rod Ferguson left, I believe that Epic didn't really know what to do with the franchise. And as much as I love Tim and Mark and we're still in touch, uh, when the IP was sold to Microsoft, um, the only phone call I got was from Phil Spencer, right? Huh. And like that's Phil, Phil is, as they say, a gentleman and a scholar. And, you know, the, the kicker was, is, you know, Epic had to keep the coffers full. You know, they hadn't shipped a game in a while. You know, the engine was doing rather well, but, you know, they were growing and they, you know, probably had, you know, needed the, the, the income, even though they, they really didn't know what to do with the future of the franchise. The thing is, I will say about the latest ones is that, you know, at the end of the one of the recent ones, they made the player choose between which character lives and dies. And I'm like, dude, really? Like, we committed to Dom dying. We committed to, you know, Maria being killed. We committed to Ty's suicide and things like that. Like, you know, like now you're just painting yourself into a corner narratively. I just, I don't get that. And again, four and five were, they're really, really good. I just, Great. I didn't feel, I didn't feel some of the heart 
that we had in the first three. And I think, you know, people on Twitter continually remind me of that. Uh, now, Boss Key, you certainly you you don't shy away from that experience in the book. Uh, obviously, Boss Key did not work out. You're very honest about it, including the details of why. Um, do you think any decision could have, you know, we can't go back, but was could you point to anything where, where it could have changed the outcome on that? So this is a bit of a side note, but do you ever like research like why airplanes crash? I do not. I, I probably mentally don't want to. It's um, I'm comfortable with air travel. I have millions of miles up my butt. Um, the thing is, usually it's a, a series of cascading failures. So people like to point and say, like, this one thing made lawbreakers not work or this, that or the other. You know, I think the marketing was largely uneven. I think that Overwatch became a phenomenon. I think we were actually a little bit too hardcore of a shooter. And I think that, uh, you know, my brash personality and my putting my politics out there certainly did not help. When your news story about your game is the fact that your game has gender neutral bathrooms in it. And people are like, what the fuck, dude? Like, I don't give a shit, you know, because, you know, my politics are relatively progressive. You know, I was trying to actively do what I could to get Pat McCrory out of office as the governor of North Carolina and get Roy Cooper instated. Spent a good amount of money on that. And, you know, all of those things together, you know, really added up to the fact that it basically cratered. You know, we, we wound up with like something like 6,000 concurrent players initially. And then it just every week it went down. And like, I literally felt like I was on the Titanic watching it sink as all that happened. And for me to stand in front of my company, these people that I'd hired that I've, you know, met their spouses and their children, you know, to, I've, I've gone to dinner and had drinks with them and to, you know, try and fluff them up on a Friday meeting and tell them, you know, we're going to be okay. We're going to make this work. Um, even though I just, you can feel my nose growing like Pinocchio. Um, that was one of the hardest experiences of my adult life. And uh, I, I'm still friends with a number of the people that worked there. We, we have a text thread that we keep in touch with all the time. When they come to town, we'll just go out for a pint and whatnot. Um, but it absolutely, absolutely broke my heart and broke me for a good year after the studio closed and I lost my dog. And meanwhile, you know, YouTubers and the, the internet's like, ha ha. And I'm like, you don't really understand what it's like to be responsible for 80 people and their livelihoods. And there's this this urban legend going around saying I didn't pay them. And it's like they got two weeks of salary and two months of health care. Like we we allocated for that. Like, I don't know where people were making that rumor up from. So it, uh, it was it it, it, it kind of wrecked me for a bit. And thank, I thank my lucky stars that I have Lauren in my life. And she was supporting me through all of it, through, you know, pitching the Dragon Project at, you know, 2K, Microsoft. Uh, Activision, the whole nine yards, uh, which ultimately got turned down, uh, which I'm never more motivated than when I'm angry. And one of the things I'm working on is something re related to that, the dragon thing. And I'm working with J.J. Uh, Abrams go-to producer, Brian Burke, who did Star Wars, The Force Awakens, the Star Trek movies, Alias, uh, Cloverfield, all that. And, uh, you know, stay tuned for news on that soon. Well, do you think that uh, social media has has changed discourse in the games industry for better or for worse? Maybe it's not a binary I think, thing. Well, it's, it's social media, I believe, is an issue. But it's also, you know, again, eyeballs equals money. So what you're also seeing is the culture wars. 
you know, and there's people online, you know, usually 4chan trolls are like, keep your politics out of my video game. And I'm like, dude, have you played Bioshock? It's based on Ayn Rand's philosophies, you fucking idiot. Like, you know, read a book, motherfucker. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's, you know, caused this kind of like ping ponging effect between people where, you know, it's, it's, you know, do you remember the old school, uh, idea of the, when you play a video game, the time until you see a crate from old man Murray. Uh, it's basically like whenever, every, every, every time you play a video game, it's only a matter of seconds until you see a crate. Right. And it's basically, you know, the internet brings out contrarians, you know, and people that just want to say what no one else is saying and they want to get under your skin. And then again, eyeballs equals money. So it's one of those things that, you know, Twitch streamers, I respect what they do. They work their butts off, but you were in a, the culture of, Hey, what's up guys? Like it, subscribe, eh, you know, that kind of shit. And, uh, you know, it's as a 40 something dude, it's, it's slightly exhausting to be honest. It, is that how you'd feel about it too? I guess. Cause I, I should have phrased that question of how does it affect game developers? Cause I know how it affects me as a media person and in the community, but does it have a, a tangible effect on game developers in the middle of the project or are you guys absolutely fucking it, no, no, it absolutely fucking affects us. I remember, uh, do you remember the old website NeoGAF? Sure. It was, yeah, it was a forum. Um, and, you know, it was like the whole, like, if you're big on NeoGAF, you're big. And um, I remember, like, you know, my my coders at Epic and my artists, like, reading the forums and seeing what people were saying and literally having panic attacks over it. Like, if you're a person on the internet saying words, keep in mind, these people are working sometimes 12, 16-hour days to bring you this product. And, yes, sometimes it ships broken, but they do it for, you know, to feed their fucking families but also for the, literally the love of the game. And, you know, I wish people online would just pick their words a little bit more carefully. And the fun fact is that, you know, sometimes there have been people who've recognized me from my work that I've actually become friends with. There's this uh, woman named Jessie who recognized me at karaoke one night. And then now her and I are like really, really close friends. You know, there's this girl, uh, Brie Martin, who um, actually does QA at Epic now. And her and Lauren are like thick as thieves now. You know, she recognized me at the first boss key panel at PAX. And so, so, you know, the thing is, you know, we're all human beings. You know, words hurt. We all have feelings. And I wish people would keep that more in, in mind. Well, uh, my time with you is up here. And, and we've covered, you know, we've talked about your early career, your childhood, your, your home life, uh, making it at Epic, Unreal Tournament Gears. The book is Control Freak. It's out now on paperback. Read it wherever you want, whether it's paperback, Kindle, tablet, iPhone, whatever the case may be. Find it, read it, you will enjoy it. And for more from the best, brightest, and most interesting minds in the games industry, check out all of my other episodes of IGN Unfiltered wherever you like. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.